Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. We are going to finish up 1 Corinthians 10 this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, we're looking this morning specifically at verses 23 through actually chapter 11, verse 1. So uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and uh, verse, verses 23 all the way down through the end of the chapter and then to the very beginning of chapter 11 and verse 1. Last Sunday, we, we studied 14 to 22, and uh, in, that, in those verses, uh, Paul taught us that flirtation with idolatry is not simply um, a matter of Christian freedom where good and godly people might disagree, but really a serious forsaking of fellowship with Christ and a failure in faithfulness to Christ. It's much more serious than any kind of a matter of Christian freedom. Many in the Corinthian church were approaching this whole issue of dining in an idol's temple, something that was very commonplace in that time and in that culture. They were associating that behavior with an, uh, they were approaching it with an attitude of arrogance and presumption on God's gifts and God's privileges. And Paul attributes that attitude that they are holding to really um, immaturity on their part and uh, theological naivete. Um, This we have said through chapters 8 and 9, which we've been studying for several weeks, that is a completely distorted view of our Christian freedom. Um, And Paul's continued to call them out for it again here in chapter 10. Beginning in verse 14 last week, he gave this summary command, and the, the command is this, and we would do well to take it to heart. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If we seek Christ with all our heart and we uh, come to him, we can expect divine aid in all of life's trials, and that's what the preceding section taught us. All the temptations of life, Christ is there. Uh, There is no danger of falling in that sense because God is faithful. But that said, we cannot put the Lord our God to the test, and that's what they were doing. We cannot pursue a headlong, willful idolatry because to do so is is dangerous business. The way out of the sin of idolatry we learned last Sunday is not to sort of be careful with it, but to flee from it and to turn away from it. And uh, and that led to this um, consideration in verses 15 to 18, in which Paul appeals to their reason, their common sense, really. It's an appeal to common sense that fellowship with Christ and faithfulness to Christ are incompatible with any kind of idolatry. Uh, in our lives. And to make his point, he urges us to look, to stop, and to consider uh, what we know about the Lord's table, and even by looking to the example of Israel. He says, uh, he says, I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. He says, look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? Again, this language of sharing in the blood of Christ, sharing in the body of Christ, um, refers to our sharing in the provisions and the benefits of the new covenant ratified through Christ's death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the grave. So when you and I, and we will this next Sunday, gather around the Lord's table as his church, that table becomes um, a fellowship meal where in the presence of Christ, 
by his spirit, God's people look back to the cross with faith-filled eyes and thus realize and reappropriate again the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection to our hearts again. So uh, through our participation in the Lord's table, we reaffirm that we, are, we have been made sharers with Christ in his eternal life and that we are bound to each other as his spiritual body, and that is all by his grace uh, in his wrath poured out on his son in our place. So through the Lord's table, our common life together is both celebrated and it is experienced in a, in a meaningful way, in a spiritual way. And being joined together with Christ then makes it impossible for us to join ourselves to false worship or to idolatry in any, in any context. And then he says in verse 18, look at Israel. He says, when, uh, he says, when they sat down to share a fellowship meal after offering the, sacri- the appropriate sacrifice, he says those who were sharers in the altar, he, he means they are sharers in, in not only the not just the altar itself, but the food that is on the altar and all that the altar signifies. And so to participate in that worship is to, is to have fellowship with God. He's, they were giving worship to the Lord and entering into true fellowship with him, and that sacrifice was made to him. So his point is you can't divorce the physical participation in the, in the activity. You can't divorce that from idolatry that's the the spiritual significance of the idolatry that's behind it you cannot you cannot put yourself in that situation again and again he says this is patently obvious and then he issues this very short clarification in verse 19 he says um, he says listen what do i mean then that a thing sacrificed in idols is anything or that an idol is anything and of course he says no that's not the case uh, he says, I won't dispute with it. An idol is not a true God because there is only one true God. But I will not concede your point that an idol worship is something harmless or idol worship is something neutral that we can just sort of agree to disagree on. Because when people sacrifice to idols and offer worship to false gods, they are sacrificing not to nothing, but to demons who stand behind so much of false worship. Paul has shown both from the Lord's table and Israel under the Old Covenant that to share in food around the worship of God is to establish an exclusive fellowship and devotion toward God and God alone. But idol worshipers are not doing that. They are clearly not giving worship to the triune God. That's why they're idol worshipers. And so he says they are other, there are no other gods that they could be possibly worshiping, so they must be offering fellowship and worship toward demons. And that, when you put it in those terms, is clearly out of bounds for the believer, which led to this call to singular devotion in the final verses of our text. And then he says this, he says, you cannot, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? He says, we are not stronger than he. Are we? And the obvious answer is we're not. Paul said the whole issue of meat offered to an idol is not just a matter of Christian freedom or liberty. He says it's, it's not a matter of indifference that good and godly people might take different positions on. He says that is a black and white issue. It is a black and white issue. The one excludes the other. There's no room for, for compromise And the message is clear. Those who accept the invitation, as we all have, if we put our faith in Christ to the Lord's table, 
If we've accepted that invitation, we cannot in good conscience receive the invitation to any other table, any demonic table, um, uh, apart from Christ. If we're really in fellowship with the Lord, we cannot have fellowship with demons. To do so is to provoke the Lord to a righteous jealousy, because he deserves all of our worship, he deserves all of our um, fellowship, all of our devotion. And if we challenge him, we will come out on the losing end of that challenge every single time. The history of Israel has proven that again and again. But the Corinthians were prideful, they were arrogant, they were presuming on God's grace, and they believed that their freedom gave them the liberty to flirt with the pagan practices of the past and not be um, not be scathed by the, to, to emerge from that without smelling like smoke, essentially. And Paul showed them that that is incredibly naive. As we come to the text this morning, though, Paul pivots, and he's answering a, a different question and addressing a different issue, because in verses 14, uh, in chapter, uh, excuse me, in, in the previous versions, uh, verses, he was warning against idolatry, and he's saying this is a black and white issue. You can't have any part of it. And because it's a black and white issue, um, our singular devotion to Christ renders that incompatible with Christian discipleship. But what about those situations that are not black and white? And that's where he's going in our text this morning. What about those scenarios and circumstances that are, in fact, morally neutral, uh, where, where, where God's Word doesn't give definitive um, instruction one way or the other. What, is, uh, what are you and I as followers of Christ to do in that situation? Uh, and how are we to approach that? And that is what he is addressing in these final verses of chapter 10. He's going to help us answer that question because as Paul concludes his discussion on this topic that really began back in chapter 8 and now is coming to a, a, a a fitting conclusion in chapter 10, he's going to give us a very simple framework for navigating the non-essentials. It's a a framework. It's not a comprehensive framework, but it's a simple framework to navigate the non-essentials. And this isn't just like theoretical for the Corinthians or for us, because as we're going to see, Paul makes very specific application in his instruction. He makes it clear to them how they are to think about these things and truth be told, we don't have to think too long or too hard to find similar kind of scenarios in our Christian walk where we might be called upon to apply this same framework where God's Word doesn't speak definitively. How are we to think about that? So in this section, I think we'll find that Paul's instruction is eminently, with an E, meaning superiorly practical for you and for me as we walk in Christ's footsteps. So I just want to read our verses and set them before us. He says in verse 23 of chapter 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience' sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
give no offense either to Jew or to Greek or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. In a sense, these final verses are a short exercise in decision-making through a distinctly Christian lens when Scripture doesn't lay down a moral absolute. That's what we're seeing here. As Paul wraps up this section, he moves from moral absolutes, which he talks about in chapter uh, verses 14 to 23, and really even further back into chapter 10. This is black and white for Paul. You cannot share in the table of demons and be a share in the table of Christ. He moves from that to matters of indifference in verses 14, excuse me, verses 23 to 33. Uh, what this word, matters of indifference, um, the theologians call that, uh, you have a fancy word for that, that, that set of things that God's word doesn't explicitly teach or one way or the other. It's called a diaphora, meaning basically without difference. It doesn't matter. Um, those things are morally neutral. They are left up to us as individual Christians to evaluate and to decide upon. Now, what places a matter in the uh, a diaphora or the, indis- or the uh, indifferent column isn't whether people have or continue to dispute a different matter, okay? Because literally every cardinal doctrine of the faith is disputed in some way, shape, or form, or has been over the years. Someone or some group of people somewhere take issue with it. So it doesn't become disputable or uh, fall into the category of indifference simply because there are people who take the name of Christ who have different opinions, that's not the case. What places a matter in the column of, uh, of indifference is what Scripture consistently says or more likely doesn't say about the topic and how God's Word ties it to other matters. So some examples of um, matters of indifference we see in the Scripture are things like oh, what we eat. We, we are not under the law, so that we are not following the dietary restrictions of that God prescribed through the Old Covenant. Um, so eating and drinking is not a matter of uh, 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 which Scripture gives us um, any kind of uh, commands or restrictions. Uh, another thing that he mentions specifically in Scripture in Romans 14 is celebrating one day or some set of days as more important than others. So again, under the law, many of the Jews felt like they needed to keep the feasts and the the Passovers and all these different things because, well, you know, they had a conscious, moral consciousness about that. And so some observed those days as they, had, as they had before Christ, and some Christians didn't. And again, Scripture doesn't give us a command one way or the other on that. He says both can do so for the glory of God. But um, matters of indifference can extend beyond just the, the explicit examples that we see in the scriptures to things like um, whether or not we use technology, um, uh, the length or the specific order of our worship services. Again, scripture doesn't give us 
commands one way or the other about that. The scripture doesn't tell us what kind of schooling we need to uh, choose for our children. The scriptures don't tell us what form of government a nation is supposed to have or, or what genres of music are permissible for a believer to listen to or, or what percentage of your income ought to be given to the church. Like Those are matters which aren't strictly governed by the scriptures. There's no command, thou shalt, you know, that thou shalt homeschool your children. It's just not a, it's not a command uh, we can point to in the scriptures. That doesn't mean that the word of God doesn't give us principles by which we might make a decision on those things, but the scriptures doesn't lay down moral absolutes on those or forbid a certain course of action on those things. And so in those situations, as Christians, we have liberty, we have freedom. And to make decisions... Uh, we have that freedom to make decisions in, in accordance with the light that God has given us from his word, and we can do so without necessarily sinning. So we need to understand that those things do exist. But while those things which are indifferent may not be black and white issues, strictly commanded or forbidden in Scripture, God does give us a framework for deciding when or how or even if we are to engage them. And so while we do have true freedom, our freedom in Christ is not, as we, and we've made this case before and we're repeating it because Paul's already made it, our freedom in Christ isn't a boundless freedom to do whatever we please, whenever we please, when it comes to the things that Scripture doesn't say explicitly. Rather, our freedom is bounded by two guardrails in the text. Our, those guardrails are the good of others on the one hand and the glory of God on the other. And so you can think of them, I like analogies, it helps me kind of conceptualize these things. You can think of them like bumpers in a bowling alley, in a bowling lane, right? These guardrails, the good of others and the glory of God, keep us out of the gutter of selfishness on the one hand and pride on the other hand. And so that is um, kind of how we're going to navigate this text. This is not a linear argument by Paul. It t- he tends to kind of go back and forth through these verses. So we're just going to break it down into the three parts this morning, our outline. First, we're going to look at God's guardrails. Then we're going to see him explain uh, and give instruction about our freedom. And then lastly, he's going to make a specific application here in the middle of the text in verses 28 and the beginning part of verse 29. So we begin this morning by looking at God's guardrails, which are, <clears throat> like you said, they're twofold, the good of others <clears throat> and the glory of God. Those are the two guardrails that bound our Christian freedom. And uh, he gives us the first of those two in verses 23 and 24. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify if you remember back in chapter 6, in verse 12, the Corinthian church were, had been championing a slogan, and the slogan was, all things are lawful. In Christ, we're free, and therefore all things are lawful, chapter 6, verse 12. And um, they had taken that to heart, and Paul had um, confronted that. They had looked at their freedom in Christ strictly in terms of their own individual rights, And Christian liberty was then twisted to mean that when it came to those things that were not specifically spelled out in the scriptures, that uh, they had a right to do what they pleased when they pleased, no matter what. And uh, that same view of Christian freedom is alive and well today. There 
have been uh, again and again people in our churches who believe what <clears throat> when the scriptures talk about Christian freedom, what is uppermost is that they are permitted to exercise any and all rights afforded to them by the word of God without any obstacle placed in their way and without any pushback by those around them. But as we see in chapter 6 and again here in chapter 10, Paul amends their slogan with this qualification that has the effect of, of bringing the, the don't tread on me view of Christian liberty to its knees. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. In other words, not all things are beneficial or advantageous. And then he adds a second qualification in verse 23 that removes any confusion about how he defines profitable or advantageous. All things are lawful, but not all things edify or not all things build up. Not everything is constructive for building up other people. That's what that means. So here we see exactly what Paul means by beneficial or advantageous. He points out to the Corinthians that not all things that you have the right to do, strictly speaking, are beneficial or advantageous for other people. See, the Corinthians thought freedom meant I get to do what I want when I want. And Paul shows us that a biblical view of Christian freedom means the right to become a slave of all. It means that we have a right to benefit advantage, or build up others. That's a privilege that we have. He talks about it in chapter 9, verse 12. If others, yeah, if others share this right over you, do, no, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance for the gospel. And then in verse 19, for though I am free of all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. These qualifications that he gives here and again back in chapter 6 are reiterated then in a, in a simple lesson, a, a verse of instruction in verse 24. He, he kind of synthesizes his point in a, in a simple statement in verse 24. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Now, Paul hasn't written this anywhere else in his letters up to this point, but the way that he speaks and the way that he summarizes this, it becomes clear that this is foundational to his understanding of Christian ethics. And that was something most likely that he had taught them before and continued to teach in all his ministry throughout various, the various churches. And we see this again in Romans chapter 15 and verses 1 to 3. He says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Or later on, as Paul wrote <clears throat> to the Philippian church in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. So in both Romans and in the, his letter to the Philippian church, he anchors this axiom that we are not to please ourselves, but to look out for others. He anchors that to Christ and to Christ's example for us. For Paul, Christ's death in which he freely, willingly gave himself for us isn't just God's pardon for sinners. It is also a pattern of discipleship that we as Christians are to follow after. And so freedom 
Freedom doesn't consist in living according to your desires. It consists in really being free in Christ in such a way that you and I are able, truly able to benefit and build up other people. It's a freedom to build up others. That's the first guardrail. But he lays down a second guardrail at the end of this section in verses uh, 31 to 33. And that is the glory of God also bounds what we do and when we do it. In verse 31, he says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that was the issue, right? This is the issue that they're dealing with, what to eat and where to eat. And now he's showing them that um, this meat, which was offered um, and two idols and then subsequently sold in the marketplace, offered to false gods. We had to think about that in a specific way. And Paul gathers up these concrete examples of eating and drinking, and then he broadens it out to cover all imaginable matters of indifference, whatever you do. And he lays down this principle, they must all be done for the glory of God, for the honor, for the praise, and the greatness of our God. And what gives God glory, what ascribes praise and honor and greatness to God? Well, among other things, it is not giving offense, verse 32, to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. I mean, that's one way that we can give God glory, is to not be offensive to all the different kinds of people that we'll come into contact with. In that day, it's kind of Jew and Gentile were the two big categories, and specifically other believers, the church of God. Now, to give offense here doesn't so much mean to hurt someone's feelings as it is to behave in such a way that you prevent someone else from hearing the gospel or that you push away someone who's already a brother or sister in Christ. He continues in verse 33, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit or gain or advantage, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. The categories here are intentionally broad, and they echo Paul's words from chapter 9 in his own example. In verses 20 to 22, he says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law. To those without law, I lived as without law, but not, he says, without the law of God, but under the, not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I might by all means save some. His point is there's no group of people, unbeliever, believer, that you and I can just write off as insignificant. There is no group of people that we can just disregard when it comes to matters of indifference. Everything you and I do from what we eat and drink, to what we watch, to where we go, to how we speak to one another. All of it has to be for God's glory and the good of others. From Paul's point of view, that finds its highest um, aim in leading others to Christ and building up his church. This is radically countercultural then, just as it's radically countercultural now, today. The Corinthians were approaching liberty from the perspective of their knowledge and their rights. And that framework ultimately isn't biblical. It isn't Christian because its bottom line is selfishness. 
freedom to do as I please, when I please. But Paul approached his liberty with two different guardrails, walking in love that edifies and magnifying Christ. And that framework is Christian because its bottom line is the spiritual and practical benefit of others and God's glory, which is uppermost. And so these are the guardrails that he places on our freedom. We see them uh, kind of sandwiched in this text in verses 23 and 24, and again in 31 to 33. Does that mean then that Paul viewed liberty as essentially hemmed in by other people? Do we define our freedom in terms of others? Is that what he means? I mean, if I'm always looking over my shoulder then and worrying, well, how is this person going to hear or receive this? Am I going to offend that person or am I going to upset this person in, another ch- in this church context? You know, if that's the case, I'm a, that's how I live my life every day. Am I truly free? That's the question. And the answer that Paul gives us to that question is yes. Yes, we are. And Paul makes that, that, that point from verses 25 to 27 and again in verses 29 and 30. When it comes to matters of indifference, and he uses the example of food, but we could apply it to any situation like that, he's going to establish that our freedom really is freedom. There is a genuine freedom, and one's own conduct in these matters of indifference is not judged by God, and it ought not to be judged by our brothers and sisters in the church. So we have to understand that when Paul says, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor, like he says in verse 24, that doesn't create this like standing rule or obligation to always abstain from whatever that thing is. Just because, and just kind of give an example, eating uh, and serving pulled pork might offend your Orthodox Jewish neighbor when you have them over for dinner, Therefore, and therefore should be avoided when you give them that invitation. <laughs> that doesn't mean that you never eat pork, right? Uh, and you can apply the example to uh, a number of other things. And Paul's instruction for everyday life in Corinth is very straightforward in verse 25. He says, eat anything that is sold in the market, meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the whole earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Again, coming back and understanding the context... Most of the meat that they could purchase had been processed through an idol's temple. This portion was reserved for the offerer, a portion was reserved for the priests, whoever they were, and the rest wasn't thrown away. They sold it in the marketplace. So the majority of the meat that was available for sale had been a part of false worship. And Paul says, if it's just you out in the marketplace shopping for a, a steak... You do not need to worry about where it came from. Paul makes it clear it doesn't matter where it came from because it ultimately came from God's gracious hand. Meat is meat. Buy and eat. <laughs> All right? What if you're invited over to your unbelieving neighbor's house and they serve you meat? Do you need to then inquire where it came from? Do you need to trace it up the supply chain? to find out where and if it ever was offered as a sacrifice? He says, no. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, which is implying that we should go, eat anything that is set before you without asking question for conscience sake. So again, verse 26 
is the justification. That's a quotation from Psalm 24 in verse 1. He's saying, as you and I as Christians under the new covenant, we are free to eat all the foods that are available to us, even those forbidden under the law, because God is the ultimate source of all of it. God has given it to us from his gracious hand. Even that meat which is sold in the marketplace, he says, so enjoy it with a thankful heart. The clear implication is that nothing contaminates the food along the way because God has given no instruction on food or drink. Those things are not important. This is true freedom. You have true freedom. I have true freedom. That's why Paul asked that rhetorical question at the uh, beginning of verse 29. He says, um, we're not to ask questions for conscience sake. He says, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's conscience. Again, he says, for why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? And the answer is it's not. It's not. Our conscience is not judged by others. We are not hemmed in by others' conscience all the time. God is the Lord of the conscience, and we made that case in chapter 9. He is, alone, he is, he is the one who, who's, who we can have a conscience toward, and therefore, he says, if, uh, if I receive food with a prayer of thanksgiving and a grateful heart, as I see that from God's gracious providential hand, there is no basis for judgment on that matter whatsoever before God. He says, sometimes when I'm around Gentiles, I conduct myself as a Gentile. And sometimes when I'm around Jews, I conduct myself as a Jew. He says, I can choose to do that or I can choose not to do that. If he eats, he does so in the light of verse 26. Hey, the whole earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. And if he doesn't eat, if he chooses not to do that, he does so again free in Christ, given no specific instruction from his word. We can choose not to do that. That's why Paul said in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So listen, if you want to eat kale, you are free to eat kale. What you cannot do, what you cannot do is tell me that I have to eat kale. And I will not eat kale to the glory of God. Or any other thing for that matter. What you and I eat, what you and I eat or don't eat is irrelevant. What you, where you choose to send your children to school is irrelevant. Where the church, whether we as a church sing three songs or five songs is irrelevant. Whether you listen to certain genres of music or not is irrelevant. Whether you shop at this store or that store is irrelevant because God has given us no instruction on the matter. We are free in Christ to choose what we believe is the wisest and best course of action for ourselves, for our family, where the word of God is silent. We are truly free. In Christ, we have to understand that when God's word doesn't give us a clear word on the issue. But, but, and this is, this is important, we need to understand that while our freedom in Christ is a real freedom, that our freedom is not the summum bonum, the highest good of our Christian life. And that is Paul's point. The highest good, the greatest good is to seek that benefit of others and the glory of God. That is what is the highest aim. And that is why Paul gives, thirdly, the specific application in verses 28 to 29. He says, But if anyone says to you, This meat is sacrificed to idols, 
Do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. And I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's conscience. So the interpretive question here as we look at these verses is Paul makes a specific application for them is who is the anyone in verse 28? If anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, who is that? There's three options here. We can interpret that as the host, the person who invited you to the dinner. It could be um, another unbelieving person who's a guest at the same meal. Or thirdly, it could be a weaker brother or Christian who also happens to be at the meal. So who is he talking about here? Well, the least likely option is that it is a fellow Christian with a weak conscience. And the reason I believe that this, that's most likely not who he's talking about here is related to the term that is used um, in verse 28 when he says, talks about meat sacrifice to idols. That's a very unique term, and it's spoken from a pagan point of view. There's a different term that a, a Jewish or a Christian person might have used, and Paul uses it earlier in the chapter. It's called, they would refer to it more as idol meat, you know, in kind of in a pejorative way. But here, the person informs you that this is meat sacrificed to idols or sacrificial meat. That's a pagan description of this meat. So, so that kind of takes the Christian person most likely out of that option. And then, again, I don't think it's the host either because Paul, if Paul had wanted to point out that the, it was the host, he could just as easily have said this one because he just referenced the host in the previous verse who invited you to the meal, or he could have expressed no subject at all. But he went out of his way to use a specific indefinite pronoun. He says, if anyone... So I think the best way to understand verse 28 is this is not a Christian with a weak conscience at the same meal, and it's not even the host who's telling you that he, where this meat came from. This is another unbeliever at the meal who is pointing out to you as a Christian that this is sacrificial meat. Why would they do that? Well, it seems that Paul is envisioning that this unbelieving guest is essentially trying to help you out as a Christian, knowing that you as a Christian might have a conscience, a moral consciousness about things connected to idol worship. Remember, at this time, Christianity was largely an offshoot of Judaism. To the unbelieving world, they're all kind of the same, just different versions of the same thing. And so they knew that the Israelites were very scrupulous about what, what food they ate and where it came from. In fact, they often did chase it up their supply chain to make sure it had never had any contact with false worship. And so it's not really hard to imagine that a, a situation where this unbelieving person is genuinely, though mistakenly, thinking that we as Christians are equally as concerned about such things. So what do you do in a situation like that? Paul says if that's the situation... Your guardrails are now extended, and you make a conscious choice to abstain. You say, on what basis? And he says in verse 29, uh, for the or verse 28, for the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience' sake. Well, whose conscience? Is it my conscience? In verse 29, he says, no, not your conscience. Paul says, for that other person's conscience. Right? The other man's. 
But how can my eating or not eating have anything to do with that person's conscience? And the answer is it doesn't have much at all to do with the other person's conscience. But the clue to understanding what he means by conscience here, because the term is, it's like, a, it's any, like any other term, it gets its meaning by its context. And the range of meaning isn't just speaking of the moral arbiter that we have kind of in our brain, but this term conscience can refer to just a general moral consciousness. And so he's saying the one who pointed out the sacrificial origin of the meat to you as a Christian has done so out of a sense of moral obligation to you as a believer, and thinking that you as a Christian, just like the Jews, may or may not, or shouldn't or wouldn't eat such food. So the thinking is this, in order not to offend that person, nor his or her moral expectations of you or I as Christians, and precisely because it makes no difference to God whether we eat or don't eat, we should abstain under those circumstances. They're pointing it out to you, alters how you conduct yourself. Now, that meat isn't simple, because they pointed out to you, that meat isn't simply a good gift of God passed through kind of unknown channels. Now, it's the end product of idolatry, and you and everyone else at the meal knows it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so Paul says to eat under such circumstances would most likely sanction and support idolatry. That you as a Christian are obligated not to eat for conscience sake. Not, their, not your conscience, but theirs. You as a Bible-believing Christian know that, listen, it's just meat. And no, you know, the meat offered to an idol has no, it doesn't do anything to its character. It doesn't pollute it or contaminate it. It's just meat. And an idol is nothing. Your conscience is clear, but theirs is not. And a pagan observer likely thinks their idol is a god, and thus seeing you participate in that and eat that meat, they look at that as you signing off on their idolatry. In that situation, the beneficial and God-glorifying thing to do is to abstain, to restrain your right from eating. I, I hesitate to give myself as an example because I don't think it's helpful to always be the hero of, a, of an illustration or story. And it's not my point in telling you this, but I'll just give you a contemporary example from my own life. When I was first married, Trisha and I first got married, um, and I was finishing up seminary, we would go over to her parents' house for dinner um, a few times a month. It was a short drive from, and we typically would go over on Sunday afternoons and, and hang out there and have dinner. And uh, her dad, her parents are not believers, her dad would often uh, have one beer with dinner every time, or almost every meal that we had dinner there. And being polite and being a, you know, being a polite host, he would always ask me if I wanted one. Uh, again, kind of translating because he doesn't speak directly to me. <laughs> and I remember especially the first few times, his offer was always framed in, ter- in, in these terms. Can you have a beer? Right? This person who's training to be a pastor, can you have a beer? Because if you can, I don't want to be rude, you can have one as well. See, for him, he had a moral consciousness in his mind that people who are Christians, particularly those who are training for vocational ministry, are generally conservative with regard to their consumption of alcohol. And because he had that expectation, and it was obvious to me from the way he asked and, and his, his demeanor, I always deferred. I said, no, thank you. I said, no, thank you. 
even though there is nothing in Scripture that would forbid a full-grown man like myself from having one beer with a meal. There's nothing sinful about that. I voluntarily chose not to exercise that right, not for my conscience' sake, but for his and for the sake of the gospel, because I want to win her parents to Christ. And this is their expectation of Christians. See, knowledge and rights are not what ultimately regulates our conduct as believers. Freedom, bounded by the good of others and the glory of God, must guide and govern our actions in all the various situations of life. And that will often require a spirit of discernment and wisdom because life just isn't always black and white. And we understand that. And so, as I read through and study through these verses, I realize, and you should realize this as well, that there is a real practical application here for us. And, and Paul makes that point in chapter 11 in verse 1. This is one of the more unfortunate chapter divisions in the New Testament. Because really... Verse 1 of chapter 11 should be verse 34 of chapter 10. I mean, even the most basic um, Bible student can see how this flows directly out of the previous, the previous verses and isn't really talking about what he's going to get into in chapter 11. He says now, be imitators of me, Paul says to them, just as I also am of Christ. He doesn't just appeal to his own example. He says we're to follow him in the way that he follows Christ in this. He is pointing us once again to, to the Lord, fixing our primary focus on his sacrifice at the cross. So very similar to how he ends chapters 1 to 4, the antidote to selfishness and prideful behavior that insists on one's own rights regardless of how that might affect other people, the antidote to that is Christ crucified. That is what slays our pride. That is what tears down our selfishness. It's hard to imagine a more telling way to end such a long argument. He says, look to Christ, who did not please himself, but took our reproach upon himself all the way to the cross. He had every right as the sinless son of God, he didn't need to do any of that. And yet, he chose and took it upon himself to bear the wrath for sinners like you and like me, that we would be set free, truly set free, in order to make ourselves a slave to all and win the more. This is the lesson of these verses. And so we're at, when we're asking, what can I do? How far up to the edge can I go as a Christian? What does the Bible let me do? We're asking the wrong question. We're asking the wrong question, and we're looking at it from the wrong perspective. Paul says we need to ask ourselves, what would bring God greatest glory? What would be the greatest benefit to others? And if that is what, uh, if there is some course of action that is greater than me having my rights fulfilled or my personal preferences um, established, if, there, if that Bring God brings God greater glory to not do that thing or to abstain in this context, then that is what we have to do because it has implications for the gospel. And this is, this is how Paul lived his life. And so we kind of bring this whole section to an end, you know, with Paul kind of 
ending where he began, because again, in chapter 8, the beginning, he says, be careful with your knowledge. Be careful with your, um, with your freedom. He says, love, love edifies. And love toward God glorifies him. And so this is how we, this is how we navigate these things. And uh, you know, the, sometimes we need the counsel and wisdom of others in that context because we don't know what to do. And sometimes we're not sure, what does the Word of God say here? And what principles should we use to apply? And that's where we become a, a resource to one another to build each other up and to be more like Paul and more ultimately like Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have uh, not just given us clear commands of what we are and are not to do in your word, but you've also given us a framework, uh, um, uh, principles by which we can navigate all the matters of life and to do so in a way that exalts Christ, in a way that um, builds up others, in a way that glorifies you. I pray, Lord, that we would take these things to heart and help us to evaluate our lives and those things that we do and don't do and why we do those things. May we bring them underneath the rubric of, your, of the scriptures, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to win all the more. Uh, may we be gospel, uh, gospel heralds for your name's sake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.